Hello, and welcome back to Homo Absurdus, uh, episode two. Um, before I begin, I do want to say very quickly that um, you can follow me on Twitter, at Homo Absurdus, that's spelt differently, so it's H-O-M-O-A-B-U-S-U-R-D-U-S, uh, on Twitter. Uh, if you think I'm talking nonsense, if you think there's something I missed, if you think there's something you'd like to correct me on, if you just want to tell me that you love the show, um, or if you hate it, um, please feel free to get in touch with me from there. This week, as I mentioned uh, last week, uh, we're going to look at Jordan B. Peterson's The Twelve Rules for Life and Antidote to Chaos. Um, now, I want to begin by saying um, that I didn't hate this book nearly as much as I thought I would. Um, so I've seen Mr. Peterson's work in other fields, um, and I've seen him talk on TV and um, some of the reactions to him. Um, and I honestly went into this thinking, I'm going to hate this book. Um, and in some ways I did, and some of the things I thought about him were indeed confirmed, and I'll talk about those when I get to the uh, the actual rules themselves. But I do want to start by saying I didn't hate it nearly as much as I thought I would. Um, another little thing to point out here is I, I didn't buy this book for myself. Um, it was bought for me by a colleague at a job I recently left, um, um, I think it was bought more or less as a joke. I think she was she was very clear that she thought I wouldn't like this um, and it would upset me and it would kind of set me off and she likes hearing me go off on uh, on crazy rants about stuff. Um, and I think that was kind of the meaning behind that that gift. The other thing I'd like to point out, I think that I've been I've been going back over this book um, now for the last week, taking notes and highlighting sections and trying to condense my thoughts into little one and two minute shouts that I can put out in a little while about these twelve rules. Um, that's really hard work, um, much harder than I thought it would be, especially with a book which I didn't really, I don't really agree with, um, at least in large part, um, I didn't really enjoy, at least in large part. Yeah, so I think it's going to be a while before I review um, another book, um, and if I do, perhaps it'll be a book that I'm already much more familiar with, um, and one that uh, I, I'm going to enjoy reading um, more than this. But, um, otherwise, if you've read this or if you've not read this, then this is just a little kind of... I hasten to say review. It's not really a review. It's, it's going to be more of a, an introspection and a kind of a, a look at what it, what it contains. Um. All right. Well, starting off, let's have a look at this, the cover of this book. Um, I've got the, uh, the Orange Spine uh, Penguin edition. Um, and the first thing that I, I noticed when I looked at this book before I even opened it was down the bottom it says the multi-million copy bestseller um, which kind of reminds me of the uh, the famous McDonald's quote of over 200 million burgers sold um, and I think in as much as it's philosophical it's that kind of philosophy um, this is going to be useful for a lot of people in a lot of different ways um, and I think a lot of people are going to get a bit miffed with it for those same reasons it's going to work for others um, but yeah let, let's let's get into this and have a look so the book starts um, with a little overture where it talks about um, well, sorry but he, I'm going to refer to him as a he um, where he talks about um, how he became who he is now um, and essentially it, it tells us all about Jordan Peterson and, and um, yeah and uh, yeah he's essentially he's a clinical psychiatrist um, there's nothing wrong with being a clinical psychiatrist, but it, it certainly doesn't make you a philosopher. You may be philosophical at times. Um, yeah, so he describes himself as a, let's have a look here, he says, clinical psychologist and professor of psychology. Um, and, and when he sticks to that in this book, 
he does really well. Um, when he talks about psychology and some of these rules um, and how one should address the world and, and how one might deal with uh, children and various other things as well, um, he does really well. Um, and I think if he if he focused more on that and, and laid off of the the heavy preaching, um, the assumptive kind of behaviours, and that there's a lot of um, this is just the way things are uh, in this book. A lot of this is just how things are. This is just how you have to deal with them. This is how you make it better for you. And whilst I I understand that you can't have control over everything, that there seems to be no effort or desire really to um, change or move that narrative on. Um, which is okay a lot of the time, but then some of the times he's talking about um, things that I would consider misogynistic um, or things that are uniquely um, biblical. Um, and in, in those cases, maybe he just, you, maybe you need to look at the fact that you need to change your attitude to the world, um, which things he does say. Um, but maybe you just need to change your attitude to that. Uh, and that, that's very prevalent. Um, yeah. So I'm going to, um, the rest of this podcast, I'm going to run through really quickly um, the 12 rules themselves um, and a little bit about what he, what he says to do with them, which essentially is something. Um, but yeah, it, it's otherwise it's a very well-written book. Um, it contains a, a compelling narrative. Um, I found myself kind of pulled into certain bits and pieces of the narrative. Um, you know, there's bits where he talks about his daughter, um, bits where he talks about his pets, bits where he talks about his personal experiences. Um, and they, they do resonate, um, even though largely I would disagree with uh, a lot of his um, reasoning. And the other point before I get really into this, um, it's very well researched. Um, there are an awful lot of um, points here. Uh, there are 280 odd uh, references and they're all be, they've all been referenced clearly and properly. Um, it's very well put together and very tightly put together. It's as you'd expect from someone who comes from a a field of of, uh, of academia um, and and the other thing I'd like to say before I start really is that I actually in essence like a lot of these rules there are some I dislike but I actually probably like more of these rules than I dislike and not that really matters but um, I think they could all be useful as well I think some of the reasoning um, that he uses is uh, either erroneous uh, at points or just just downright scary at other points um, and in a lot of ways um, I, I think maybe you're better off uh, looking at these as conventional pieces of wisdom re-expanded I don't think there's anything massively new uh, in this book and certainly nothing life-changing for me anyway and I do know of course that a lot of people have found it life-changing uh, a lot of people have found it um, very useful I think you have to be a certain type of person I think you have to accept a lot of preconceptions um, about the world in general before going in and if you don't share those I think you like me you, you will find yourself riling against it um, you'll find yourself going well that doesn't make sense that doesn't follow um, that's not to say that his arguments are bad as such it's just that you have to agree with his premises um, which obviously I don't in a lot of ways um, and maybe you don't either maybe you do um, and if you do then great um, you might enjoy this book and you might find it useful and I think even if you don't you might at least find the basic premises presented useful <laughs> so rule one uh, is summarised as saying stand up straight with your shoulders back 
Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, that that seems like an interesting thing, doesn't it? Really. Um, what he's saying is is be assertive. Um, you know, present your best self to the world, and that that's never a bad thing, I suppose. Um, then we get into the reasoning, and boy, is that a bit dark. Um, he starts talking about lobsters and their territories, um, and birds and their territories. Um, he talks about um, contagious av- avian d- diseases um, attacking the least dominant, most stressed of the birds. He talks about um, levels of serotonin in the brain um, and then the, the neurochemistry of defeat and victory. Uh, and essentially goes on to say, behave like a winner and you'll feel like a winner. But uh, a lot of it really goes into some very dark victim blaming. Um, it just says, you know, and again, it works in this preconception, this is the way the world is. And if you don't like that, get a helmet. Um, and now while I kind of understand what he's saying there, um, yeah, I just feel it'd be better to approach it with a, we're beyond that, we're above that. Um, but he doesn't. He talks about, um, as I say, animals. He talks about how um, female lobsters identify the top guy quickly and become irresistibly attracted to him. This is a brilliant strategy in my estimation. It's a confusing sentence, really, because if you're irresistibly attracted to someone, it's not really a strategy, it's just what you're designed to do by nature. Um, But he goes on to say, you know, just like lobsters, um, the nature of nature um, is something that we should aspire to. Um, This rings a little bit, I say, of of misogyny, um, and a little bit of just, you know, this is the way the world is, deal with it, rather than this is the way the world is, what can we do about it? Which I, I just think would be a better approach. Um, but yeah, that, <clears throat> that whole really that whole thing um, ends with the line: um, "Look for your inspiration to the victorious lobster with its three hundred and fifty million years of practical wisdom. Stand up straight with your shoulders back." And it just really all stings of victim blaming. Um, you know, if, you, if you're not the successful one, then that's your fault. There are winners and losers, and don't be a loser. Okay, I, I understand that, but. Again, you're equating um, the animal world as, as somehow being equivalent um, to the way in which humans see the world. And we, we know that's not true. We know that as humans, we can do more about our environments. We can socially evolve um, rather than just physically evolve. And for a psychiatrist, I think, he really is missing a point here. Um, you know, as a psychiatrist, I don't know how useful that would be in a ploy, and I'm not sure I'd want him as my psychiatrist if I ever had one. Um, but fine, the first point, I, I don't dislike it. And like a lot of these points, I'm going to end with that concept of, I don't dislike what you've said, I just dislike your reasoning, and I dislike the way you've got to that point. And I find that kind of either offensive or open to criticism. All right, but yeah, but um, chapter one, stand up straight with your shoulders back. So yeah, present a positive outlook to the world. Maybe it'll be more positive for you. Moving on. Rule two. Treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. Okay, that's quite cool. And he starts talking about medical doctors now and says, you know, um, the the, the opening uh, first subparagraph is, why won't you just take your damn pills? Um... And he talks about how doctors get annoyed that patients don't take their medication, and the psychiatrists tend to take a dim view of such judgments um, and uh, assume that the failure for patients to, to follow their instructions is because it's a failure on their part. 
Um, and yeah, he kind of goes on. And then, very suddenly, it gets super biblical. Um, we start talking about, for some reason, the book of Genesis. Um, we start talking about the creation myths. Um, we get we, th- we randomly throw uh, Descartes and Newton and Bacon in there. Um, we we talk about um, all kinds of bizarre things. Uh, the idea of chaos and order um, again here, and and I would very much point out that when he's talking about chaos, he's talking about women. Okay, um, misogyny reeks through this chapter as does biblical text and those two things probably aren't disconnected um, you know anyone who's read the bible to any extent understands the amount of misogyny and tribalism in there um, so yeah uh, this is this is really probably one of the worst chapters I think um, yeah here we are there's even a subparagraph entitled chaos and order personality male and fe- female and male yeah female equates to chaos male equates to order males are strong um, and organised things and women are I don't know what he quite what he means here, but like fuzzy-headed and, and make things chaotic and crazy. Yeah, uh, here's a little quote: "Chaos, the eternal feminine, is also the crushing force of sexual selection. Women are choosy masters. It is for this reason that women on dating sites rate eighty-five percent of men as below average in attractiveness, and just some really weird kind of stuff like that. Um, there's just a lot of assumptive." Uh, misogyny really let me go back and we talk about um, the Garden of Eden again um, and again I'm, I'm not really clear why we're talking about this but we are we talk about the naked ape um, which is a really odd one um, so here's a little paragraph my son figured out that he was naked well before he was three he wanted to dress himself he kept the washroom door firmly shut he didn't appear in public without his clothes I couldn't for the life of me see how this had anything to do with his upbringing it was his own discovery, his own realisation, and his own choice of restrictions. It looked built in to me. Yeah, or he'd just seen adults wearing clothes and realised that now, as he was growing up and was becoming aware of other people, that other people wear clothes, maybe I should wear clothes. But to him it becomes this innate thing. Um, and again, we get Adam and Eve, of course, gets related back to, we go back to Genesis, we talk about good and evil and the nature of good and evil, again, in relation to Genesis, this chapter really is very preachy, um, T.S. Eliot, um, again, talks about it in, in The Spark of the Divine, um, he obviously brings T.S. Eliot into it, um, fills a couple of pages with that, um, yeah, and just really goes on to talk a lot about biblical references. And then towards the end, um, brings in Nietzsche, of all people. Um, he says, as the great 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche so brilliantly noted, he whose life has a why can bear almost any how. Yeah. I mean, I think he's deliberately misinterpreted what that means quite quite clearly. Um, you know, Nietzsche's talking about if, if you can find a why, then you can put up with a how. It doesn't mean that the why or the how are relatively important. Um, but he seems to imply that it is. Um, he goes on to actually after that point to say um, you could help direct the world on its careering tra- trajectory a bit more heavenward and a bit more away from hell once having understood hell researched it so to speak particularly your own individual hell you could decide against going there or creating that you could aim elsewhere you could in fact devote your life to this that would give you a meaning with a capital M 
That would justify your miserable existence. And he ends up with saying, you could begin by treating yourself as if you were someone you're responsible for helping. Okay, so largely this is just a sermon on the nature of good and evil uh, from a very biblical set of rules. Um, but the rule itself is just don't judge yourself too harshly. Unfortunately, it comes from that pseudo-religious place of because you're a sinful, filthy human being who was born that way and you need to do something about it. But again, the rule itself, treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping, is a good rule. Um, you know, at one point in this chapter, he talks about um, animals. He says, um, and I'm paraphrasing, that that um, we don't hate cats because they're predators. When they bring a, a dead animal in, we don't criticise them for it. We think of it as a, a as a wonderful gesture and a nice gift. Um, and that's because we understand that they, they don't have uh, culpability over their nature. And we should extend that to ourselves. We don't have culpability over our nature. And again, it... It's this whole principle of um, of good and evil from from a biblical context and a biblical standpoint. Whilst that's not necessarily terrible, it, it's not great, is it? Um, and I, I think it throws up a whole load of problems. And like a lot of the other rules uh, in this book, I like the rule. I'm not so keen on the reasoning. Um, and I think I could just do away with the reasoning and go, okay, don't be too harsh on yourself. Yeah. That moves on to rule three. Now this one, hmm, yeah, okay. Anyway, this is make friends with people who want the best for you. Well, what does that mean? Well, he goes on to tell us a nice story about his old hometown and where he grew up, his friend Chris and his cousin. Um, he talks about all kinds of odd things like him being a natural engineer. I'm not even sure what that really means. Um, he talks about growing up in a teenage wasteland which I think is probably familiar to a lot of us you know when we grew up we, we wasted a lot of time um, and he talks about how he didn't enjoy um, parties when he was growing up um, and he didn't enjoy the sort of wastelandish kind of feelings of, of teenage life I'm not really surprised this guy didn't like parties <laughs> anyway um, he goes on to talk about rescuing the damned um, uh, here he brings in Dostoevsky um, and a quote from uh, Notes in the Underground, um, which obviously begins with the famous lines, I am a sick man, I am a spiteful man, I am an unattractive man. I believe my liver is diseased. Which is actually one of my favourite quotes from Dostoevsky. But um, he goes on again to quote several pages full of Dostoevsky quotes. Um, and again, I'm not really sure what he's trying to achieve with that. Um, although it does become a bit clearer as the chapter goes on. Um, and he talks about a reciprocal arrangement there's actually an interesting part in here where he talks about a friend of his who comes over stoned um, and he, he's very angry because his friend has brought over a, a guy who's high on marijuana he assumes or high on some kind of drug um, and describes how they're sitting there drinking their beers when he gets very annoyed with this guy and, and refuses to see the irony in it um, you know beer is okay but, but other drugs other drugs are wrong <sighs> yeah again it's just it's just odd it comes from a lot of preconceptions and again, you know, he's he's uh, an older guy who's got grown-up children who grew up as um, a Christian. Um, I believe he was an he's an evangelical. Uh, doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, he he has this weird kind of concept with it. And he ends with, um, uh, you remind them they ceased caring not because of life's horrors, which are undeniable, but because they do not want to lift the world up on their shoulders where it belongs. Yeah. Don't think that it's easier to surround yourself with good, healthy people than with bad, unhealthy people. It's not. A good, healthy person is an ideal. 
It requires strength and daring to stand up to such a person. Have some humility, have some courage, use your judgment, and protect yourself from too uncritical compassion and pity. Make friends with people who want the best for you. Okay. So yeah, it's the after the life story kind of parts, um, but it, it, that's a really good point, I think. Um, that, that end part, at least, is a really good point, and this is, again, one of the rules that I liked. I say I like a lot of these rules if I don't like the reasoning. Um, and in this case, yeah, he's he's essentially saying, you know, don't surround yourself with people who need your help. Surround yourself with people who can be an ideal to you, people who you can aspire to. Um, yeah, make friends with people who want the best for you. Chapter four, rule four, I guess. They're not really chapters. Compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. That's rule four. It talks about the internal critic um, and how it's uh, it was easier for people to be good at something when more of us lived in small rural communities. And how as we get bigger and now our hierarchies of accomplishment become dizzyingly vertical. Okay, these are some good ideas, some good points. Um, you know, he talks about there will always be people better than you, um, and talks about that as being a cliche of nihilism. Okay, sure. This um, is like the phrase in a million years: "Who's going to know the difference?" The proper response to the statement is not, "Well, then everything is meaningless." It's any idiot can choose a frame of mind within which nothing matters. Talking yourself into irrelevance is not a profound critique of being; it's a cheap trick of the rational mind. A cheap trick of the rational mind. Oh boy. Um, uh, this is from the same guy who quoted Nietzsche and, and Dostoevsky earlier on, um, along with various extracts in the Bible. But uh, okay, um, yeah, I guess you can. It doesn't make that any less true. It doesn't really offer a counter argument to it. Nor does he go on to really offer a counter argument in, in this chapter. Um, yeah, I mean, it just kind of goes on in this same vein. Um, for another chapter. This one, fortunately, is um, there's some appeals um, to biblicals, uh, to biblical authority. Uh, he quotes Luke twelve twenty two through thirty four. I'm not going to read that out, but he does, um, and some other little biblical passages in there. Um, yeah. So compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to someone who else, not to who someone else is today. And that, in its core, is actually really good advice. Again, you know, are you better than you used to be? Are you moving forward? Are you moving towards some a goal? Whether or not that's attainable is is kind of irrelevant. Um, he says, "Attend to the day, but aim at the highest good." Not quite sure what the highest good means, or if there is such a thing. But sure, that aside, if we took the biblical um, and the Nietzsche bashing out of it, we could maybe look at yeah. Don't compare yourself to somebody else's. There's always going to be somebody better than you compare yourself to who you used to be and are you better than you used to be and if you're better than you used to be you're moving in a good direction yeah but I didn't really need a whole chapter to come to that conclusion and in fact everything in this chapter so far has discouraged me of that conclusion um, it made me think well actually I began to question it and this happens a lot throughout this book but let's move along rule five now this one is quite nice. Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Yeah, it's not too surprising. I mean, he's a psychiatrist. Um, you know, he can t he talks in here about um, helping uh, a 
friend's child with their sleeping pattern talks about experience with his daughter and with other children that she meets and people that he sees and we, we've all seen these children that we think oh god you know why won't their parents deal with them why won't they face up them and, and assert authority over them um yeah and, and he comes up with some nice little uh, nice little sub rules i'm just trying to find them here uh, yeah here we are um limit the rules okay we can agree with that use minimum necessary force yeah i can definitely agree with that and parents should come in pairs Oh, and we've gone back to that. Um, <laughs> it's a shame, really, because it was it was going so well. Um, but yeah, I think this is true. You know, you want to limit the specific rules that you're giving to the, your children. You want to use the minimum necessary force over your children. Um, but sometimes some is going to be necessary. Um, yeah, parents have to come in pairs. I mean, I think really what he means is that if you have two people, then you have two different perspectives and you have... Uh, and again, he starts talking about male and female. It becomes very misogynistic again, but I'm not going to go into that. Um, and that you should back each other up, back each other's decisions up. But I do like this rule. I really do. Um, and it's not too surprising to say, because he's a psychiatrist, um, that he can write a chapter about how to train children, essentially. Um, yeah. So this is probably one of the best ones. And he, he left the God stuff out of it as well. Um, one of my notes is just a smiley face at the end of this chapter. I was like, Wow. You know, if only he did more of this um, and less of the rest of it and stuck to what he actually knows and wants to talk about rather than meandering off into this semi-biblical philosophy, this book would be a lot better. Um, but yeah, there you go. Don't let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. Rule six. Halfway there, folks. Um, set your house in perfect order before you criticise the world. Ow, the irony. Um, <laughs> because the first subparagraph is a religious problem. Uh, and here we go again. Um, we go straight into uh, Mephistopheles. We go into Tolstoy. Um, we talk about God. Um, we talk about various... Ma the Columbine massacres. And all these things are kind of mixed up in a crazy word soup not much of which makes a lot of sense um but yeah set your house in perfect order i mean essentially what he's saying is don't be bitter don't be narcissistic strive for the best in yourself <sighs> yeah I, I could agree with these points but set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world coming from a christian who <sighs> quotes nietzsche in one paragraph in one chapter and then criticizes him in another and oh boy um yeah, yeah, it's a shame. Um, overall, not too bad though. Um, and there's less of the the pseudo religious bullshit, which is great. Um, let, let's leave that out. We don't need it. Um, and again, I think, you know, set yourself right before you criticize others is probably pretty sound advice. I don't know if I'd phrase it in exactly the same way as he has, but whatever. Um, but again, yeah, this is standard psychology 101, isn't it? So, yeah, there we go. Um, set your house in perfect order before you criticise the world. Rule 7. We're over the hump. Pursue what is meaningful, not what is expedient. Get while well, the getting's good, he says. Life is suffering, that's clear. There's no more basic, infatible truth. 
It's basically what God tells Adam and Eve. Bloody, 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 blah. Here we go again. Ah, oh, boy. And then we go on to quote a large chunk of Genesis. Um, it's just a shame, again, that he's using this nonsense as some kind of higher wisdom. Um, I, I just wish he wouldn't. Um, I think if he stuck to the psychology stuff, he'd be better. Anyway, um, but here, yeah, he says, uh, the simplest, most obvious, and most direct answer, pursue pleasure, follow your impulses, live for the moment, do what's expedient, lie, cheat, steal, deceive, manipulate, don't get caught in an ultimately meaning universe. What possible difference could it make? Well, lying, cheating, stealing, deceiving, and manipulating are not things that will help you. The reason that humans and, and human society has those rules in place is because they're not expedient. Um, and the fact that you haven't looked beyond that, you've decided that, and by you I mean Mr. Peterson, has decided that that's the be-all and end-all of classic nihilism, is naive at best, deceptive at worst. He's doing one of these things that he says not to do. But yeah, I don't, I won't lie and steal and cheat because society won't let me lie and steal and cheat. And if I do, I'm likely to get caught. And if I do get caught, society's going to punish me. It's not expedient for myself to do these things. It's not in my own best self-interest, even if everything is meaningless. If all I want to do is care for my own immediate expedient self-well-being, I wouldn't do the things he's describing that you should do. It, it, it's a straw man at best. He talks about the biblical narrative of paradise and the fall. Um, and again, we're back to the Bible. And it, it's such a pity if he just stuck to psychology. Anyway... Um, he talks about the, the delay of gratification, excuse me, and begins to talk about sacrifice as a meaningful concept. God's sakes, um, you know. So the first question: What must be sacrificed? Small sacrifices may be sufficient to solve small singular problems. And he goes on. We've already established the basic principle: sacrifice will improve the future. He talks about Cain and Abel and a ton of other biblical references, and it, it, it's exhausting as a chapter, utterly exhausting. It, 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 oh. it, it says the society produced by Christianity was far less barbaric than the pagan or even Roman ones it replaced. For God's sakes, man, have you not read history? What about the 400-year transatlantic slave trade? I mean, oh. again, this is the problem, because the actual rule itself is not terrible. You know, it, it, it's not. Do what is meaningful, not what is expedient. It's not terrible. It's just you've wrongly identified what expediency means. You've wrongly identified what meaningful means, or you've decided arbitrarily on what meaningful is. Um, and then juxtaposition the two things, neither of which you provided sufficient premises to prove are accurate or even reliable. And we are, we're back to that pseudo-religious nonsense again, laid on thick, with a trowel in this one. Um, yeah, I, uh, it just kind of really upset me, um, and it really did, it kind of affected me quite deeply this one, because I was like, you had such a simple premise, a lovely simple premise, do what's meaningful, not what's expedient. Which is great if we looked at how does one find meaning, what is meaning, rather than here are some bizarre biblical references that show that sacrifice is meaningful. Rather than, here's a total misinterpretation of nihilism. I mean, he doesn't even question absurdism. I'm assuming that he doesn't bring absurd this is because he's unaware of it? Or because it just wouldn't work within his narrative? 
but there's a point after that um, you know there's somewhere else you can take nihilism there's somewhere else you can take that concept without just going nothing matters I might as well lie, lie steal and cheat all the time which isn't even true in itself frustrating frustrating anyway like I say yep that's that rule um, do what is meaningful not what's expedient maybe Mr Peterson should look at that rule himself alright rule 8 tell the truth or at least don't lie okay that on the surface seems like a great one right um, I think we can sum this up really as be true at least to yourself yeah I think that's fair but boy some of the ways in which he tries to justify this are insane um, he talks about political spin he talks about capitalism he he paints a scary anti a scary neo-marxist um, monster that he then kills uh, you know not literally but he, he does um, he actually contains a, a quote from uh, Hitler uh, on page 227 wonderfully um, talking about types of lie here and how one how one lies I'd say it doesn't put it forward as a positive example but he does quote uh, Hitler and there are other points in this where he he talks about um, nothing good can come from Germany now because we're not allowed to say anything good comes from Germany it's just kind of frustrating um, you know he makes his own little monsters and then kills them but yeah I think you know overall um, tell the truth or at least don't lie um, so yeah be true at least to yourself great could do without the capitalism is great Marxism is evil um, political rhetoric doesn't really need putting in there it doesn't really help us um, you know talks about inequality and all kinds of other things and again we don't really need it um, so again yeah um, another good rule basic principle of life a simple thing that most people should understand horribly ruined um, by demons of his own creation shame rule nine then uh, assume that the person you're listening to might know something you don't wow if you've ever seen an interview with Jordan Peterson um, I'm not sure he follows this rule himself um, I think I've I think I've maybe seen one uh, one piece of public speaking he's done where he admits fault in his own rhetoric but oh boy uh, he doesn't he doesn't follow that rule a lot of the time um, yeah um, and again, now we go back we're back on steady ground though let's be honest um, we're back on the topic of psychology that he knows well um, and he doesn't need to to prop it up with um, religious uh, thinking or with um, fuzzy philosophical nonsense uh, misunderstood concepts um, he talks about um, all kinds of things um, sexual desires he talks about um, figuring things out for yourself and listening to people he talks about a couple of his patients obviously not by name uh, he talks about how to listen um, says the great majority of us cannot listen we find ourselves compelled to evaluate because listening is too dangerous that first requirement is courage we do not always have it and he's quoting Carl Rogers there when he says that um, and again yeah you know he, he, he comes up with some great points because we're back on psychiatry we're back on psychology it, it's a thing he knows well and he doesn't need to prop it up um, and he talks about all different kinds of ways of leaning, uh, learning rather than listening um, which is great um, he even brings up Socrates at one point which is scary but <laughs> there we go 
Um, so yeah, this point makes sense. It's presented well. There's no preaching. Um, if I could cut this book down to bits that I liked, this would make it through, probably along with the um, the child ruin one we mentioned earlier. And again, I'm beginning to notice a pattern now. So when he's talking about things that are purely talking about uh, the human condition, human psychology, he's really good. He really knows what he's saying. He presents some really interesting, thought-provoking, useful things. So when he veers off that, that he needs to fill the gaps in his knowledge and inevitably he uses that that god of the gaps where he he literally and figuratively uses god to fill the gaps in his own knowledge um or sometimes he just stuffs Nietzsche in there um like a square peg into a round hole but there we are but yeah um say stick to more of that mr peterson that'd be great but rule nine assume that the person you're listening to might know something you don't good advice Alright, on to rule 10. Oh, and it was at this point, I must admit, that I was getting very tired of going through this book with the critical analysis. Um, not to say that I haven't, I followed this through the end as I'd got this far, but this is where this, this last, the last few chapters or the last few points and the conclusion took me another two days to go through with a fine tooth comb. Um, whereas that first part probably take me a, took me a day or two to go through. Because it just starts to grind down at you. Because <laughs> you know there's something horrible around the corner, you know there's some misogyny. Anyway, let's see what's next, shall we? Rule 10. Be precise in your speech. And here he talks about the meaning of words. Okay, cool. Uh, he talks about you know, what constitutes a computer, when we look at the world and we use words, what does that mean? Um, and, and all kinds of sort of talking about that. Um, and then we get on to um, the world is simple only when it behaves. Uh, it's very difficult to make sense of the inconnected chaos of reality just by looking at it. Um, yeah, and he talks about um, cars being a concept rather than an object. And great, I, I get it. I understand kind of where he's coming from. Um, you know, and here he talks about all kinds of things. Again, I think he goes back to sexuality at one point. Um, I'm not going to look it up, but yeah, I think pretty sure he does. Um, yeah. He talks about the story, there's no such thing as a dragon, um, which is actually quite an interesting little thing that he's done, which is also available uh, as a broadcast on YouTube. So maybe look that up, it's, it's actually quite interesting. Um, yeah, that, there's a lot of stuff here, and he talks about how, you know, if something's wrong, maybe it's you that needs to change. Um, you know, don't always assume it's somebody else. These are all points he's kind of covered earlier. Um, but essentially, it can be watered down to sell distilled down rather the exact opposite to say say what you mean uh, and mean what you say yeah I mean I, I can agree with that he says confront things don't ignore them um, he goes on to say um, yeah he talks about confronting problems and not ignoring them having the courage to deal with things um, it's better going through that temporary chaos that temporary problem than it is putting up with a long um, drawn out problem all of this stuff is 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 great advice um yeah confront the chaos of being he says uh, take aim against the sea of troubles i wonder who he's paraphrasing here uh, specify your destination and chart your course admit to what you want tell those around you who you are narrow and gaze attentively but move forward forthrightly be precise in your speech and again yeah i think be precise in your speech is a a good piece of advice you know be careful about what you're saying. Make it clear that other people understand you. Clarify. Um, again, not, not bad advice. 
it's a little bit preachy, I'm not going to lie, um, with a few sort of misogynistic overtones in there as well. But overall, again, not bad advice, and I'd say that's going to be a recurring theme. Um, the actual points themselves, not bad. So be precise in your speech. All right, rule number 11. Now, this one's quite a confusing one when I read it first. Do not bother children when they are skateboarding. Okay. Um, now, this is quite a long one. Uh, I'm not going to lie. This goes on for about 50-odd pages. Um, and I could go through this and take it apart bit by bit. Um, but, yeah, there is an awful lot of misogyny in here. Um, again, there's a lot of Marxist monsters that he's created and put together. Um, and then knocked down to how ter scary and terrible they are. Might sum it up as let boys be boys and girls be girls. It, it's that level of um, misogyny, really, and a kind of old, old man speech, really. Uh, you know, tough men equal good. Women want tough men. You know, we should let people make mistakes. All that said, though, the point itself isn't terrible. Again, saying let people do things that are dangerous. Let people make mistakes. Let people learn. That's how people learn, right? Is they make mistakes, they do things wrong. Um, again, it's not a bad point. It's just terribly rationalised. Um, you know, he's laying on again the misogyny and anti-Marxism thick with a trowel, and that is obviously going to appeal to a certain subset of his readers. And I guess one of the annoying things, as a friend said to me um, when I told him I was going to do this, is that he he won't admit that that's a problem he won't admit those people exist he won't admit that he attracts those people on purpose and I think it's so clear that he does so clear you know if I was already a misogynist if I was already uh, right wing if I was already um, a Christian you know if I'm a right wing conservative Christian I'm going to love this book and I'm going to love everything that it says it's going to back up everything it's an absolute circle jerk of everything I already believe but that doesn't mean we should disregard the advice so leave children alone when they're skateboarding. Um, yeah, let people make their own mistakes. Let people fall and hurt themselves. Let people climb buildings. Let them do it. Don't stop them going, well, you shouldn't do that because it's dangerous. Maybe that's why you should do that, because it's dangerous. Yeah, and actually, you know, there'll be babbles on in a long way. It's a really sound point. Just, again, poorly made. All right, well, that was rule, uh, rule 11. As I say, leave children alone when they are skateboarding. That moves us on to rule 12. We're there, folks, at the very end of this. Well, almost. Pet a cat when you encounter it on the street. That's pet a cat when you encounter it on the street. Dogs are okay, too, is the beginning of his first chapter. And here he goes and he talks about his dog. Um, that's a wonderful quote here, and it kind of sums up some of the bizarre kind of um, signalling to the far right that he is littered throughout this book. Um... I own a dog, an American Eskimo, one of the many variants of the basic spritz type. They were known as German spritzes until the First World War made it verboten to admit that anything good could come from Germany. Dear God, you must just put a goddamn swastika at the start of the chapter. It's, it's depressing. Um, but yeah, he goes on to talk about his dog, um, suffering the limitations of being. Now, this is actually a part that resonated with me quite a lot. He talks about his daughter and how she suffered from... Um, all kinds of medical problems when she was younger. I believe it was, uh, it was yeah, it was her heel or her leg, um, some kind of juvenile. Let me remember, 
rheumatologist. Yeah, we are. Yeah, it's rheumatoid arthritis, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, um, which is a really sad story. Um, and, and again, makes this point really well um, in, in that respect anyway. Um, but yeah, he, he goes on all about, he talks about superheroes as well, move things along. I, I think essentially what he's saying here, and it goes on in quite a way, is um, the importance of the small things. Yeah. Don't ignore small things. Nice. Um, the story about his daughter, actually very touching um, and really relative to the narrative um, and really good. Um, a little bit of religious cre creeps in there, but just a little bit. Um, but yeah, this is by far probably my favourite rule from this book. Uh, not just because I love cats, but, um, you know, pet a cat when you encounter one on the street. Look for the small things in life that make you happy. Yeah, flick your head around, see that cat poking around from a bin, and give you a little coochie coochie coo. And that's lovely, um, and it's a really good way to end it. But again, he is really sandwiching that, frankly, pseudo Nazi, pseudo, um, not even pseudo, absolutely blatant misogynism, um, and all kinds of other horrible things he's sandwiching in there, which is, again, not surprising someone who, who pulls a lot of morality from the Bible, I suppose. But that's for another time. And then finally talks about uh, Coda and what shall I do with my newfound pen of light. Um, which is, he talks about some technology stuff and all kinds of nonsense there. Um, but essentially what he's basically saying is, is, now you've got this thing, you've got this advice that I've given you. Do something with it. Turn your life around. Make it better. Use the advice. Well, yeah, I guess I wouldn't have used the advice, you know. I would have read the book if I wasn't going to use the advice, and honestly, I think I probably will. Um, but yeah, that that brings us to the uh, to the end of that chapter by chapter review. Those are the twelve points that he talks about. So yeah, overall, I guess you sort of already got my point here. But I don't mind this book. I didn't hate it, as I say, nearly as much as I thought I would. Um, just because I don't like this guy, I didn't want to commit an absolute ad hominem and completely disregard this book because of the. Uh, the author I wanted to give it a fair chance and even individual points I've tried to give as fair a chance as I possibly can um, but there's so much stuff hidden in there there's so much whistleblowing going on um, there are so many little nods to misogynists there are so many nods to conservative Christians there are so many little nods to um, white supremacists um, there are so many little whistleblowing sounds in here that he must know about he must have understood when writing this that it would appeal very much to that subsect of people. I don't believe when he says that he doesn't. Um, you know, this is a person who doesn't believe that there's a gender pay gap. Okay, there actually isn't. But, you know, he doesn't... He he, he goes about berating people who, who think there's a, a problem with the patriarchy. Now, I think that's probably untrue, that there is a problem with patriarchy, but that's just the natural order of things. The boys must be girls, girls must be girls. It's just how things are. You've got to deal with it. Here's a Bible. Um, Z Kyle, it, it, it's really disturbing a lot of the time in a lot of ways. But that doesn't mean you should diminish the points, because actually, as a self-help book, which is fundamentally what this this book is, it's not a bad one. I've read worse. Um, you know, uh, I've, I've certainly seen worse on YouTube. Um, the points are all pretty valid. Um, you know, um, 
it's just as I say, it's just the reasoning, um, and that reasoning's put there for for a reason. It, it's couched the way it's couched for a reason, not just to show that, not just to support his points, because part of the arguments used in each chapter will support his points, and part of them are just going whistleblowers to to those little subsects of uh, of American and international society that he wants to whistleblow at, so they can go, ah, you see, this this renowned psychiatrist and famous person agrees with our our point of view, our view of the world. Isn't that great? Yeah. And, you know, I've had people herald him as, as an authority on things, and I, I'm afraid he's not. He He's an authority on, on one thing. Um, he's an authority on psychiatry. He's a good psychiatrist. It's clear that he knows his stuff when it comes to psychiatry. Um, it's when he veers off that road and tries to get philosophical with you that it irks. He misquotes, misunderstands philosophers um, in ways that, are, to people that understand it properly, almost comical. Um, and my fear is that people reading this book might get that impression of it. Go, well, you know, that's nihilism. Nihilism is just doing what's expedient. Yes, nihilism is kind of doing what's expedient, but it's not lying, cheating, and stealing. That that's not what's expedient. You've skipped a whole bit. You know, as I said earlier. There, yeah, there, there are many other issues that I don't want to go into too much detail so I've been blathering on for the best part of 50 minutes at this point um, but yeah overall um, if you are a conservative Christian or, or even a right wing Christian or, or to be fair even someone who strongly supports capitalism or has a problem with Marxism or socialism as a whole there are going to be loads of stuff in here that's going to whistleblow to you and you're going to love it you're going to love those bits but if you come at it objectively um, and I tried to as best I could come at this without uh, a predetermined uh, moral or a political stance you're going to spot them and you're going to go oh wow you're just trying to appeal to people who, who think that already oh jeez um, and that's definitely what he's done and it's probably part of why it sold so well um, and why so many people own copies of this book myself now included though as I said at the very beginning I didn't pay for it it was a gift um, but still yeah so overall um, my overall thoughts, you know, um, I say I didn't hate it nearly as much as I thought I would. Um, the points taken in isolation are great. Um, the rationale is frankly terrifying uh, at some points, um, but at other points, really good. Um, let's have a look at some of the reviews on the back here, real quick. Um, we have the Daily Mail saying, genuinely extraordinary, unmatched by any other modern thinker, a prophet for our times. Wow, uh, it's Dominic Sandbrook of the Daily Mail. Where else? Um, what else have we got? The most influential public intellectual in the Western world right now, said the New York Times. Uh, yeah, don't know about that. Um, a recipe for salvation, says the Daily Telegraph. Oh dear. Um, eclectic and stimulating, fearless and impassioned, says the Guardian. It's Matthew Diaconta of the Guardian. Yeah, I mean, it's none of those things, um, in my humble opinion. Um, it's a middling to good self-help book. If you just took the 12 rules without the explanations that it gives them, it's a terrifying glimpse into a dark, misogynistic, pseudo-Naziistic mindset if you read the reasoning. So I would advise, if you are interested in knowing more about this book, go online. Um, have a look at those 12 points, listen back to this and you can sort of hear what I'm talking about and how I kind of summarise them perhaps um, and that'll probably do you 
unless they say you're a conservative Christian um, or a white supremacist or a massive supporter of capitalism or just a hater of Marxism, then you're, you're definitely going to find some, some exciting little whistleblowing points in here that you can highlight and put on your wall as um, inspirational quotes. But um, for the rest of us, I'm afraid there's n not an awful lot in there. Um, I would describe myself probably as a, a centrist as far as we go politically. Um, and yeah, there were just a lot of really obvious, uh, obvious ploys and, and obvious pandering, I think, um, to what he knew his public was going to be. But there we go, yeah. That's my uh, brief review of 12 Rules of Life and Antidote to Chaos by Jordan B. Peterson. Um, don't pick up a copy today. <laughs> it's my advice, as I say. Go look at those rules online. Um, listen to my podcast. Listen to others. See what they had to say about it. Okay, so next week, um, I've set up a short interview between myself and a young man called Josh, who I've known for a number of years. Um, Josh is an interesting individual in that he's a uh, signed-up member of the Libertarian Party of the United Kingdom. Um, if you don't know who the Libertarians are, then by all means do a little bit of research. Um, myself and Josh are going to have a, a little chat um, about some of the ways perhaps in which he believes that uh, Libertarianism is misrepresented uh, in the mainstream media. Um, I'm going to ask some questions because in all honesty, I don't know an awful lot about it other than what I've read. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to find out more and hopefully you will too and we can... Uh, have a chat to Josh and uh, see what he has to say, really, about libertarianism. Uh, in the meantime, um, if you hated what I said about Jordan Peterson, um, I don't care, but feel free to hit me up uh, on Twitter at homoabsurdus. That's at H-O-M-O-A-B-U-S-U-R-D-U-S. Um, let me know if I was... Let me know if this was helpful to you. Let me know if you thought I totally misinterpreted the man. Um, let me know if you hated every second of this um, or you were gripping your chair, shouting socialist Marxist bastard at me uh, throughout. Um, I probably won't talk to you, but it'd be nice to see people's reactions to it nonetheless. Um, or if you found this useful, then great. Um, hopefully it saves you going through this book. Because um, as I say, all it did was make me really quite angry at points um, and didn't really give me anything that wasn't kind of already self-explanatory but hey that's that um, I'm out um, I've been homo with service um, and I'll see you hopefully in a week or so time thank you very much